Good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Altazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go ahead and give us a call? It's 499-9526. And you put a 225 in front of that number. That will get you to us from anywhere inside the continental United States. And we really wish you would. We love hearing from folks all around the big old country. Oh, sure. You get different opinions and different problems that the weather causes. That's right. Boy, and speaking of weather, of course, we're back to our normal, delightful 68 degrees. Hey, it's a beautiful day. It is. After those bone-chilling 50-degree days. <laughs> People just sit there and it's just rolling oh, their sure. eyes out. Of, you know? I'm sure. <laughs> 50 degrees, man. I'm freezing. Lord, turn the heater on quick. That's it. Build a fire. <laughs> I got a bunch, a bunch of email this week about heaters not working. We got an article on the website about heaters, and it goes into how to diagnose heater problems. And that's a relatively common issue on sure. cars. Heaters do give a fair amount of trouble, sure, like any part of a car. But it's kind of amusing. In South Louisiana, many, many people will have a heater problem. For instance, the heater core may start leaking on their car. Right. And that's a relatively big repair. You have to pull the dash out on many cars. And so they'll just opt to bypass the heater core. Just take two hoses, hook them together. Well, and, and that's fine when it's March, April, May, during right. the summer. You mm-hmm. start getting into, you know, they kind of forget about it. And then well, it starts getting coolish. And, and even down here, I mean, cold days are maybe a couple of days in the 40s. So yeah. you take a little throw, put it in the car, maybe put it over your legs if you get cold. <laughs> You're good to go. <laughs> but there are many, many, many regions of this country where that is simply not an option. Oh, that's it. It gets 10 degrees below zero, you're going to have to have some heat in that car. <laughs> sure. That car may not even have air conditioning in it, That's but right. it will well, have a heater. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's almost a safety feature, particularly if you got small children that oh, ride in the car. Now you've got to have heat, your wife in the car with you. Your wife pretty smart say, I love you, baby, but I ain't riding that old car. <laughs> sure. You're a gentleman who drives a car by himself. He wants to rough it out. Put up with a little bit of it. Puts on his thermals. And <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Whatever. He's a tough guy, but a lot of times, especially when we have families in the car, you just, you've got to fix a heater. Oh, yeah. And those are kind of problematic things lots lots of stuff that goes into a heater oh yeah you wouldn't think there would be but there really is seems, seems like it'd be a pretty simple thing but there's quite a few things in there we're gonna talk about that in a little bit all Let's right go to some of these phone calls we got frank online good morning frank hey good morning guys how y'all today doing great sir good morning sir listen i got a 2007 ford ranger it's got the three liter in it uh-huh it's got about sixty thousand miles on it and it's developed a little bit of a rough idle when I first started. Okay. But it runs fine other than that. Okay, now once it warms up, Frank, the idle smooths out? Not really. It keeps kind of bumping, keeps kind of like going up and down a little bit. Surging a little bit? Yeah, just just a small bit. When did all that start, Frank? Was anything done to the car, any minor thing, changed the battery or anything? No, not really. It just, it just developed. Mm-hmm. Nothing at all has been done to the car at all? I a have uh, changed a fuel filter at, at maybe like... Yeah, I mean prior to this starting, though. no. No, no. Hmm. Most of the time, Frank, a rough idle when it's cold is going to be a vacuum leak of some sort, particularly if it gets better or goes away when it warms up. But now if it stays, that's less likely the case because once the oxygen sensors come online at around 180 degrees, what they can do is override and just add additional fuel and cover up a vacuum leak. Right. Now, if you had a scan tool where you could read the data, 
One way you could kind of confirm that is you could go in and look at what they call fuel trim. That tells you how much additional fuel the engine is adding or subtracting. And if fuel trim is excessive, say 10%, 15%, then you kind of know that may be the problem. And the way you'd find a vacuum leak is either by smoke testing the engine, or if you don't have the wherewithal to smoke test it, you might try taking something like some carburetor cleaner and spray around the base of the intake and such. And when it sucks into that vacuum leak, the engine speed would kind of smooth out. That would be a couple of ways you could find a vacuum leak. But I'm a little bit bent because it keeps on doing it when it warms up. So that's just less likely. It doesn't mean it's not the problem. It's just less likely. How many miles did you say? 60,000 on it? Yes, sir. 60,000. You might just check and see if the throttle body is pretty dirty on it. Okay. A, a dirty throttle body can cause that. Another thing, if it's sort of a surging up and down, up and down, the throttle position sensor can get either corrupted or dirty or even go bad, and it doesn't give a clear signal of where the throttle plate is located to the PCM. Right. And when that occurs, it's going to kind of surge idle up and down, up and down, up and down, because it's sort of hunting for it. And that's why I actually you to change the battery, because one of the leading causes of that is if the throttle body is dirty, and it's adapted to that dirty condition, and you change the battery, it loses idle. And then when it tries to relearn, it can't learn because the throttle body's dirty, and it'll definitely start doing that kind of thing. Okay. So I would now, start looking for those sorts of things. A bad connection at the battery can also cause that because yeah, it drops. Connection. Right, it drops the voltage, and it just like Lewis was saying, it's just like changing the battery out. You lose the memory when it drops the voltage right. out. And that could also be a problem. Or even a weak battery, Frank. Sometimes the battery can be weak, not bad, and it can crank the car just fine because it only takes about 10 volts to crank that truck. Right. But it requires 12.5 volts to run those computers. So let's say you're cranking the vehicle and voltage is dropping to, say, 11 volts. It's going to reset idle, and then it's going to start idling really bad after that until it relearns. And if the throttle body's a little dirty, it may not relearn. Okay. So you might want to load test that battery, have somebody check it with a capacitance test, because batteries fail a lot of different ways. Sometimes they just go dead, but other times they just kind of drag out and get weak. That what would about, also be a number one cause of that kind of thing. What about the idle air controller? Yes, that is definitely a possibility. But check and see. You know what an idle motor looks like, don't you? Yes, sir. I've seen a picture of them. Yeah, there. like a little cylinder with a couple of bolts holding down mm -hmm. a wire going to it. You might just check that. And one thing you could do is kind of take a screwdriver and tap on it and see if the idle gets better. Okay. And if it does, then I would suspect something like Another thing you can do is watch the idle speed if the vehicle has a tachometer in it because the speed ought to be around 750 RPM. And if it's varying up and down, like if it's dropping down to 600 or 650 or such as that, that would also be a sign of an idle air control valve. And if you get ready to clean that throttle body, you need to go and get a throttle body cleaner. Right, something that is labeled made for that. Right. Something that is labeled throttle body cleaner because if you use anything else, you can actually disturb the, the anodization that's on that plate, and right. it'll start leaking air through it, and you'll never get it to idle right. Right. All right, guys. All right. Look, I sure appreciate okay, the man. Thanks, All right, man. sir. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. 499-9526. number if you want to be part of the automotive, I would love to have you. That used to be a very common issue with idle control servos, particularly on Fords. Ford had more problem with it, they I did. think, than, than a lot of folks did. And you could always tell an idle servo was bad. You could take and put the car at idle, watch your tachometer, and say it's idling around 700 RPM, just turn the air conditioner on, and it should maintain 700 RPM. Correct. If it drops down and then kind of slowly comes back up, that idle motor was getting slow. And if it did, it just couldn't control idle properly any longer. 
And the Ford Ranger did keep using idle motors way on up later. The Ford trucks stopped, and then the Rangers, they continued using the idle air control valve. The big trucks are all drive-by-wire. Right, and that's something they've gone to just with technology. They're trying to get away. From, they're trying to make things easier to assemble and get down the line. That, and it's an emissions thing. Correct. In that the throttle used to be an input to the computer. In other words, you gave it gas. That input to the computer told you how much gas you were giving it. Now it's an output from the computer. What you're doing now, when you're mashing the accelerator, you're sending a request for acceleration correct the computers decide whether it wants to do that and under certain conditions it will not do it right and you can see that like a lot of the vehicles now will go to default mode where they'll you're driving down the road and all of a sudden it just shuts you down you can't go but about 30 40 miles an hour uh-huh and it's because the throttle body has shut you down another thing is most every vehicle has a top speed now most people don't most, ever get that right. fast but when it gets to a certain speed it just won't go any faster it doesn't matter how much horsepower you got that throttle body will shut you down I know it's all on, in the software. Some of them, it's 105 miles an hour, which is plenty fast. Sure. But I don't know. that You can basically set that with the programmer. You can go in and actually set that up or down uh-huh. the way you want. But the throttle body electronics allow them to do things like if you sit there and just race the motor, it can ignore you. So it doesn't because when you just push the accelerator and let off quickly like that, it does what they call a punch through. And that's where a column of emissions punches right through the catalytic converter because it can't handle it. And that's what the... EPA is worried about. So they got some vehicles where you, you can just punch the floor real quick and it'll ignore you. You won't even do it. And not only that, with the evolution of the electric cars now, mm-hmm. that has also, that came with the electric cars. Yeah. I guess technology is there now. It may not be that far in the future where when you get on a highway, there'll be a transmitter in the speed limit sign. It'll tell your car how fast it can go and as fast as it's going to go, which will cut down on speed and stuff, which ain't going to hurt my feelings any. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's go back to our phone lines with Melvin. Good morning, Melvin. Hey, how y'all doing? Doing great, sir. Good morning. I have a 96 Ford F-50 diesel, and my air conditioned compressor started squealing the other day, the mm. clutch on it. Okay. And when I first turned it on, it wouldn't come on sometimes, so I put a set of gauges on it, and I got a little pre-on. When the compressor does come on, mm-hmm. it seems quiet, but then after a few minutes, the belt will go to what does the pressure uh, do when it starts to squeal? Is the high side uh, pressure going real high? high? No, it's not. It, it's not high. What, what's the high side pressure reading? I jumped over on the I jumped the low pressure switch to make it come on mm-hmm. with gauges on it, mm-hmm. and the high side was up around a hundred, and the low side, and then when it dropped down to about twenty, I cut it off. It sounds and, like it's low on charge. But uh, what would make the belt go to not the belt the clutch go to squeal and i was wondering if the compressor might have come to pieces well almost always that is a compressor problem melvin but it could possibly be the bearing in the clutch what happens there's a bearing inside that clutch hub and when the compressor is turned off that bearing is rotating when the compressor is turned on it more or less all starts it's still rotating it's all going around as an assembly through the shaft of the compressor so if that bearing gets hot, it could actually seize up, but it ought to be making a bunch of racket if that were the case. Right. I would kind of suspect you probably going to have a compressor failing. Now, the only other options would be some debris in the system that's coming through and locking the compressor up. Now, if that's the case, you're in the compressor anyway because, number one, the debris probably came from the compressor, and if it's gone through the air hard enough to lock it up, it's going to be torn up anyway. Just me do the chicken. Uh, the easiest thing to do, Melvin, pull the line. You know where the orifice tube is? Yeah. Okay, pull the line at the orifice tube, pull that orifice out, and look at it. If it's all full of metal, you're done. Okay. Yeah, if it's 
clean, clean, and all is clear, then you can start to look for something else. More likely, if you got the black sludge of death, which it will, you know, it's full of that old black nasty oil and it's full of metal, then you know right there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it's got 245,000. Yeah, exactly. And, and I it mean, ain't never been into. Well, even, let's just say it was the clutch. 240,000 miles, you're not going to pull a clutch without putting a compressor anyway. Yeah, it'd be crazy because the same labor and the clutch costs as much as the compressor does with a clutch. So it'd, it'd be silly to put a clutch on a compressor with 240,000 miles, you know? All righty. Okay. Thank All right, you, Melvin. Man. Thanks, man. Bye bye. Four nine 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 five two six number. If you want to be part of the automotive eye, we'd love to have you. Why don't you yeah. give us a call? You know, that's a question we don't get very much this time of year. Not this time of year as much. But as soon as it starts uh, warming up, oh yeah, them air conditioners. Oh yeah, that probably accounts for fifty percent of our work for about five or six months out of the year. Almost oh, definitely. Yes, yeah, you got three guys doing nothing but air conditioning work day in day out and a long waiting list of people trying to get in <laughs> that's it and, Those, you know, south louisiana you're not going to run without air conditioning oh, too long yeah well it's, at least most people won't we were talking earlier about the heaters and right. it's sort of the same thing with the heaters up north it's the air conditioning down south exactly because it gets real hot it, it, it does get warm <laughs> about the first part of june and and really even earlier than that but sure by june we're generally into the very very high two digits low three digit right with 100 percent humidity and it is very, very, very uncomfortable in a, in a car. And newer cars just really aren't made to be operated without air conditioning. They don't have much ventilation in them other than the air conditioning. Correct. You know, 55 Chevrolet, you had the vent windows and the back windows rolled down, all that stuff. Oh, yeah, you had vents under the dash you could open. And... Right, you got a little airflow through the car. But, of course, 100-degree air and 100% humidity blowing on you. Really. <laughs> <laughs> they don't do a whole lot to cool you down. Exactly. Yeah. You just had the air moving. That's right. Once the air gets over 98.6 degrees, yeah, you really it don't, pretty much don't, don't cool matter. you down too much after that. So. You will start to see more and more and more air conditioning questions as you go past. Now, we still get a few of them. And sure. You know, the air conditioning sure. does actually operate all year round. Most vehicles are designed to where when you turn your defroster's on, the AC compressor will come on. Uh-huh. So one thing you'll notice, if your AC is not working, your defroster's are not going to work very well. Correct. That has to dehumidify the air. Right, and dry that windshield out. It does. It dehumidifies it, then it reheats it. The blend door actually puts hot air back on the cold air, which heats it back up, but it's been dehumidified, so it does a real nice job of cleaning the windshield. Again, if you remember back in the old cars that didn't have air conditioning, that defroster, yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was better than nothing. But yeah, it, <laughs> you kept an old rag on the yeah, dash. Yeah, you turned the froster on, waited about five minutes, took your rag out from under the seat and wiped the windshield. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a quick little break and be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Mike, how are you and things at the dealership's maintenance department? Dave, things are great. You guys still running that low-priced $24.99 oil change at your place? Oh, yeah. Folks come in and we just happen to find a ton of other stuff wrong with their car. <laughs> Works, don't it? Sometimes when it's a woman, I make something up like, your flux capacitor has a leak. Yeah, or your strepanoid filter head needs to be replaced. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I gotta write that down. Agco Automotive wants to let you know how to stick it to the low-price oil chain shops. Go get the oil change and then take your vehicle and their list of recommended repairs to Agco for an honest opinion of what, if anything, needs to be fixed. And we'll fix only that. Want to know more details about upsells and wallet flushes, plus tons of other automotive info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, 
welcome back. Just join us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Alvazale, Mr. Brian Terry. Be glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. It's 499-9526. Why don't you go give us a call? Be a whole lot better than listening to me and Brian sit here and babble back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee I ain't threatening anybody. But, but uh, <laughs> hey, that's it. That's right. It is what it is. <laughs> We had a lady came in the shop earlier this week, and she had a uh, Chevrolet truck. I think it was a Tahoe, actually, and it was burning a considerable amount of oil. Uh-huh. I think she was going through three, four quarts between changes. Wow. And it was just out of the factory powertrain warranty. I want to say it had 110,000 miles or something like that on it. And she brought it in to uh, one of the dealerships, asked them about it, and she actually had some kind of a recall that they did do for free they changed one of the valve covers for which that has been a problem Mm -hmm. Uh, on the five threes they got a valve cover with a baffle that causes them to use a lot of oil supposedly i've never seen that fix one but that's 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 their fix that's a legend yeah part of the reason anyway it was still using quite a bit of oil and they had told well you need a motor okay or you need to re-ring this one or whatever and we got it in, and the first thing I did, I looked up the bulletin, and not only are you supposed to change the valve cover, but there's also a baffle under the oil pan, which had not been done. Mm-hmm. So I would suspect that that probably needs to be done as well, but it's sort of interesting because I had Paul go in and do a compression test on the engine, and we were running close to 185 pounds of compression in every cylinder, did a wet test, and it only went up to 190, so hardly any increase at all. Correct. So the rings are basically in good shape. So putting new rings in is not going to help at all. Right, wouldn't have done anything. It's not a ring problem. We got all going somewhere else. Now, the somewhere else could be the part in the oil pan. We didn't get an opportunity. She decided she wasn't going to address it further at this time. So we didn't get a chance to try that. But it could be the sucking oil somewhere, like one of the baffles is missing and the PC system is drawing oil out of the engine. Another possibility is valve guide seals. Sure. And what a valve guide seal is, the valves go through the cylinder head on overhead valve engine, and there is a puddle of oil on top of that cylinder head that lubricates the rockers and the springs and all the stuff that's up there. So Uh the cam engine, it lubricates the camshafts and all that. Well, when an intake valve opens, there is basically a vacuum on that valve on the chamber on the intake, but also if there's some slack in that stem... Vacuum goes up that stem, and it's going to draw any oil in the valve cover area down the stem. And it can be a pretty considerable amount of oil. Now, what the manufacturers do is they put a set of seals on the top of those valves. In other words, a little seal, almost like a little wheel bearing seal or something, on the top of the valve guide so that when the valve goes up and down, it scrapes the oil off of it. Sure. And it prevents oil from going down the seal. If the guides are not too worn out, replacing the seals a lot of times will help. Now, if the guides get worn out, which they can, a lot of times if you follow the recommendations and go real long on these oil changes, what happens is you get some crud build up on top of the seal. That blocks all oil from going down so the guys don't get lubricated and they wear out. Another thing is oil, as it does start to deplete, the additives go away. So some of the additives that you need to protect these things goes away. And so you get valve guide wear. Now, when you get valve guide wear, the valve more or less is floating around inside that guide. There's slack on either side of it. So the vacuum increases, and the seal can't control it any longer. So it starts sucking oil right down the valve guide seals. And used to be, in the old days, the dead giveaway for that, you could always tell a car with bad valve guide seals because you could crank it up, let it run to operating temperature, turn it off, wait about five minutes, crank it up again, you see a big puff of blue smoke. Correct. 
because all the oil had puddled up in the valve cover, and when you cranked up again, it would suck it down those valve guide seals, and you see that puff of smoke. Would blow it right out the exhaust pipe. That's right. So that, that was always a dead giveaway for valve guide seals. That was more or less the definitive test sure. uh, way back in the day. But with a catalytic converter on a vehicle, you're really not going to see that because when you turn the engine off, that cat is probably still five, 500 to 1,200 degrees. Correct. When you restart the engine, it's going to vaporize any oil that's going to come out or anything that comes out, any right. papers or anything else. So you're not normally going to ever see a puff of smoke like you did in days gone by. Now, there's really no definitive test for valve guide seals other than if you're losing a lot of oil and you're not leaking it, and the rings are good, by default, you pretty much know that's where it's going. Correct. Because and there's just not in a whole lot of other places all can go in an engine. Right. And a lot of those seals can actually be changed mm-hmm. without taking the engine apart. You just yes. take the valve cover off, pressurize the chamber with both valves closed, mm-hmm. and you can actually take the springs off, change the seals, and put them back on. Sometimes you Sometimes can. you can get away with that. Yeah, it's requires normally a number of special tools and if you're set up to do it a lot of times you can sometimes it's just as easy just to go ahead and pull the head because it is kind of problematic the other issue is that you can't readily test the valve guides and see if they're worn and if the valve guides are worn putting seals on it is going to be a very very short-term fix temporary at best. right temporary at best and the valve is wobbling number one it's going to beat the new seal up but number two it's just going to be too much vacuum on that port and it's just going to go right on down now there's a seal on the exhaust valve and there's a seal on the intake valve but most of your oil is going to go through the intake port right so because that's where the vacuums that's where it's going to draw it the exhaust port is more or less going to be pressurized so it's going to tend to blow the oil away i guess if it got bad enough some oil could go sure, down and go out the exhaust but that's rarely the case it's usually going to be intake valve guide seals and not the end of the world a lot of times particularly like on a chevrolet a 5.3 or 4.8 or a 6.0 or a 6.2 the heads are fairly easy to get off. Of the yeah, they're not bad. Not too bad. They, I mean, it's big-ish, but it's not a three-day job, you know. Well, and especially if you have a good set of rings in that engine, mm-hmm. pulling the heads would be the next step. Yeah, and you can actually, valve guides can be replaced in many cases. You can drive them out, drive a new one in. The ones that are integral to the head, there's a machine that will replace them. It goes through more or less like a big drill press or a reamer. It reams them out, and uh-huh. you drive a replaceable guide back in its place. Correct. So there are ways to go in about correcting those kinds of things. And just depending on what the cost is and what the a new head would cost, That's it right. may be cheaper just to buy a new set of heads for it. Yeah, and new heads on a 5.3 are about 450 bucks a piece. Uh-huh. So you're talking 900 bucks, and you can get the guides changed a whole lot cheaper than that if the rest of the head is okay. So, hey, we'll take one more quick little break. We'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Hey. Agco Automotive is here to tell you some things are too good to be true. Like free beer tomorrow or lose weight on the ice cream and cheeseburger diet. Another thing too good to be true? The low price oil change. Automotive businesses will sucker you in with an under $30 oil change and then give you a huge list of recommended maintenance and repairs like flushes, brake work, rack and pinion leaks, oil leaks and more. Well, Agco says be smart. When you get the list, bring your vehicle to AGCO and we'll provide you an honest evaluation of any problems you may be having. Want to know more details about upsells and wallet flushes, plus tons of other automotive info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. AGCO, it's the place to go. Oh, and those beautiful models just waiting to talk to you late at night? Yeah. 
Too good to be true. With a victory crew, when you make and may punch you with that bottle move. I wanna give my all Hey, welcome back. You join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Alexander, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, true tools, try answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go give us calls, 499-9526. We'll be glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. There you go. Just add a 225 in front of that. We'll be glad to take your questions from anywhere inside the continental United States. That's right, or anywhere in the world if you want to do all the other little numbers. Yeah, that's it. I'm not I'm not willing to go through that right now. I had now. to call Mexico the other day, and it was a 001. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. You just die about international about code. Twenty five numbers. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I got a lady to do it. So it wasn't too bad. For oh, me. there you go. Yeah, that's that's even better. Uh, it worked out just fine. So we were talking about oil consumption and stuff uh-huh. like that. Yeah, one of the most persistent myths that floats around out there. I hear this all the time. Gal say, "Well, my car's starting to burn some oil, so I'm gonna put some thicker oil." In okay. Oil. And that kind of sort of makes some sense, I guess, on some level where the thicker oil may be. But really what happens when you put thicker oil in the engine, it actually burns, it increases the oil consumption. That's sure one of it urban does. Myths that because the oil's just, not getting to where it needs to get now. Well, it doesn't get up to lubricate properly, for one thing. Another thing, thicker oil boosts the oil pressure, so it pumps more up to the top end of the motor, which is running down the valve guide seals, or it's thicker oil is going to stay on the cylinder walls longer, so it's going to be harder to control by the rings. Uh-huh. So actually, if you have an oil consumption problem, you're better off with the original oil that's specified for the car. If anything, you might want to go with a slightly thinner oil, although I don't recommend changing viscosities on oil. But I know Ford had a lot of trouble with the 4.6 and 5.4 liter modular engines using oil. They were running a 5W30 in that engine. That's correct. And they retrofitted those to 5W20, and they said go back and change all the old ones to this as well. Uh Uh-huh. And that seemed to help with their oil consumption problem somewhat. Yeah, they moved the cams up on top of the heads instead of down in the center of the valley. Mm -hmm. They actually redesigned that whole engine Mm -hmm. from the old 5 liter to the new 4.6 liter. Right. And they changed the oil spec on it. And if you don't run that type, that spec of oil, the oil does not get up to the top and lubricate that cam properly. Mm -hmm. And it will burn the cams and everything at the top end. That and the tensioners because when you put the cams overhead like they did now you need a real real long timing chain to reach up so they went from about seven or eight inches between the cam and the crank on a five liter to probably 24 to 30 inches on the five four and the four six and there's two of them now right double overhead cams on a lot of them and so with that big long chain and you've got to have guides to control it and you've got to have tensioners to hold it tight and the tensioners work off of the oil pressure of the engine that's correct so when you crank the engine all has got to get up to that tensioner real quick because if it doesn't it's not going to extend the pistons on it. it's not going to take the slack out of the chain and you'll get a jerk in the chain uh-huh and that jerk can end up breaking the valve guides, which are plastic. And you take a valve guide, which is plastic, that's been heated and cooled, heated and cooled, heated and cooled over 100, 200,000 miles. It's pretty brittle. Sure. Like any piece of plastic would be. It's inside of an engine. And you get a good jerk on it, and you snap the valve guide. Well, now the slack on the chain gets much greater, so the tensioner extends further to take it out. When it does, it rotates the camshaft, which is sure. basically retarding the valve timing. Sure. And what happens very often is that you'll get a check engine light. It'll start running rough. It'll start missing. We had a 4.6 in earlier this week in a Ford pickup, 105, 106,000 miles, and it was throwing a cam crank correlation code. All right. And it was running pretty rough, and that's what it was. The guide was broken in it, and it just the 
piston had extended all the way out on tension and retarded the camshaft timing. And a lot of that comes from running the wrong oil filter on that vehicle. Well, if you put a cheap oil filter that does not have a drain bag valve, Ford is real big on using silicone drain bag valves on all their newer engines. The 4.6s and all that use the FL820F, and the S stands for silicone because it's a silicone drain bag valve and it filters. Correct. And the newer 5-liter engine that's come out has come out with FL500. 500? I thought it was the 300. Yeah, FL500, which uh-huh. is very similar to a FL820S. In fact, it'll actually screw on in place of it. I did a little bit of research. The difference in the FL500 and the 820S is the tension on the bypass valve is different and the flow rate on the filter is slightly different. Okay. In fact, the flow rate on the FL500 is slightly less than the 820S. Really? Which tells me they're probably using a finer element in it. Uh-huh. That would make sense why. I don't know that for a fact, but if the flow rate is less, it's probably because the element is slightly smaller. And I guess with the direct injection and stuff on the new 5-liter, they wanted a little bit better oil protection. I know some people are substituting and putting the FL820Ss on there because I think the bypass spec on the 820S is a little bit higher than the 500. Okay. And I think, again, this is just what I'm gathering from their specifications because they don't release all this information, but... I think they put a finer element in it, and they were afraid that it could possibly restrict because the element was finer. So they went so to a little less, bit less blow-off. In other exactly. words, it'll bypass the element where the engine won't starve for oil. It will get oil, although it's unfiltered oil. Correct. But it's better. It's no, better than no oil at all. Well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Just about anything's better than nothing at all. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, if you have one of the newer vehicles, one of the new Ford vehicles with a 5-liter in it, and you go get an oil change, you might want to watch because I had a fellow that emailed earlier this week, and he said that he had a 2013 F-150 and took it back to the dealer for the first oil change, had a free oil change, and when he got it back, he noticed they had put the FL820S, which is technically the wrong filter. Right. And he was wondering if it would hurt anything. I said, well, I don't think it would hurt anything certainly not on a one change thing but i wouldn't continue to do it i would put the right filter to one they spec out i'm sure there's a pretty substantial difference in price between those two filters yeah the 500s is just about double the price of the 820s not quite but just about twice as much but if they went to the trouble of producing a whole new oil filter they wanted it on there yeah there's probably a reason exactly for it. and manufacturers are real protective of their information uh-huh. all those sorts of things i don't know if they're trying to keep it out of the hands of competitors or if they just don't want you to know or hey we got it you ain't getting it <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what their thinking is behind right. that kind of stuff but they don't really tell you a whole lot they just come out with a filter here use this mm-hmm. they don't say well use this because yak, 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 yak. exactly and i even went and googled it and there's a million people on forums with different opinions of course you take that with a grain of salt because you don't know who this is exactly this. But as far as official information from Ford Motor Company or anything that sounded real convincing to me, there's very little or none out there. And like I said, I got the specifications on two filters, and the biggest things I saw was that the flow rate was slightly different, not hugely, but slightly different, and the bypass was slightly different. Mm-hmm. And so, Well, if they went to that much trouble to design a new filter for a new engine, mm-hmm. and you would think they had something going on there. Yeah, and you don't know. They may have something else that you can't they, they tell could, by the specifications. They could have a different agenda for it. Yeah, who knows why. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Who knows? And they just do not privy all us to mortals. To, well, they don't think we need to. That's right. You don't need to know. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> we say you're on a need-to-know basis. Yeah. You don't need to know. <laughs> That's it. It's above your pay grade. <laughs> you're exactly right there. <laughs> 
But if you do have one of the new ones, watch, make sure you do put that right all filter uh-huh. on. Another thing is that the new GM engines in 2014, the 5.3 and the 6.2, are actually upgrading to 0W20 Dexos 1. Yeah, actually, they claim it's a synthetic blend. I hadn't seen the actual spec on it yet. I do have some at the shop. I'd have uh-huh. to check that and see, but I don't know how they could get that much grade with a blend, but maybe they can. I don't know. But you have to be certain if you're going to use your 0W20, which you have to do on a 14, look and see that it's got that little Dexos. little green label that says yeah, Dexos. Right. That way you know for sure it meets the standards. Now, if you're real smart and you know what the standards are and you got an oil that meets them and it doesn't have the label, then that's fine because there's many, many oils that are going to actually meet or exceed Dexos, but sure. they, they didn't pay GM the kickback to be able to put that little decal on their bottle. And if you have trouble with it under the warranty period and well, you can't prove you've been putting Dexos in yeah, it. Yeah, they actually changed the wording on that. I've got a new have they? update on my article because if you go on my website and type in the word Dexos, D-E-X-O-S, it's going to bring up an article on the topic, and I updated it recently because when it originally came out, basically they were saying, hey, if you're not putting this in there, we may not cover it under warranty, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. Now they say, well, if you don't put this in there, you may not get the same performance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they kind of backed off, and I don't know if some of the companies that refused to pay them right. said, hey, look, if this all meets the spec, you can't say that. So they definitely – I put a copy of both statements because I had saved the original statement. Great. And – they definitely changed the wording on that. It's not nearly as strongly worded as it was before. Well, I know. Like I said, when they came out, they were strict on. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, they, this is know. it, or you, we're done. Well, and what it is, it's it's more or less like a shakedown because you already got the API and several other organizations that rate all, and I'm all for better all. But why don't you just use one of the organizations that already exists and have them come up with the standard? You won't say you got to have something meets this standard, but. What GM did is they came up with their own standard, and mm-hmm. then they told the oil companies, if you've got an oil that you've been making that meets these standards already, you got to pay us $1,000 for a license on every product you're going to sell and $0.30 cents a gallon on all oil you're going to sell to put this little decal in there. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of more or less like a shakedown, in my opinion. But That's uh, exactly what it sounds like. Yeah, and supposedly the original intention was to remove the confusion there was only going to be one oil to fit all gasoline engines and one oil for all diesel engines and that oil was going to be 5w30 dexos one uh-huh but now they've come out with 0w20 and there's also some 5w20 and all that with dexos labeling on it so okay i don't know yeah I, it doesn't look like to me they are achieving their originally stated goal well yeah <laughs> there you go you know <laughs> but who knows man that's it. You would not believe the amount of oil that we keep in stock just for the different vehicles that are out. Even some of the same manufacturers have different grade oils for their engines. Well, that's right. And, boy, I tell you, the days of just one oil fitting everything, and it's not only oils, it's fluids in general. Oh, most definitely. We have a room at the shop that's probably, if you ever been in our shop, we have a pretty big waiting room. Uh-huh. And we have a room in the back that's at least that big, maybe larger, with nothing but different types of oils and antifreezes and transmission, transmission fluids. fluids and power steering right. fluids. Yeah. And it's nothing. Like, for instance, Ford has, I can't even say how many different transmission fluids. They've got regular Mercon. They've got Mercon 5. they got Mercon LV. they got Mercon Premium. Right. And there's probably a few more. Yeah, that's, that's 4 or 5 right off the top yeah, of my head that... And it's just different ones in different transmissions. Even Toyota has their regular T4, uh-huh. which fits 
most of the stuff, and then the newer ones take the WS for world standard. Right. So they've got two, and then the old ones took Dexron. So they so actually got at least three. Three for the manufacturer, yeah. GM has got Dexron three on their old stuff, Dexron six, six after 2006. Mm-hmm. And on and on and on it goes. Chrysler has ATF plus three, ATF plus four, and possibly some others. And then when you start getting into imports, man, they all have different sure. oils. Honda, Hyundai, Kia. That's just a few right off the top of my head. Each Even have Nissan a couple. Yeah. has two or three different transmission fluids. And what it is, they design these transmissions with all kinds of gadgets and gizmos and stuff in uh-huh. And then they notice they've got a problem. In other words, it's making a noise or it's shifting hard. And they get the chemist out. Rather than redesigning it, they get the chemist out and they put yeah. additives in the Yeah, say, so, hey, here, fix this. <laughs> fix this. <laughs> And sure enough, they do get it fixed a uh-huh. lot of times. But if you put a different fluid that doesn't have those additives, you got problems. Yeah, I know Toyota says use of any fluid other than world standard will damage our transmission. So uh-huh. I think they have the most strongly worded message that I've seen. They even got a decal on the bottom of the pans on some of them, right? To use that particular transmission fluid because something else will actually can damage the transmission. Most of them say it won't shift properly. But they are pretty big on that. Yeah, they are. I know Honda, if you don't put the right fluid in a Honda, it will definitely give you shift problems. Yeah, a lot of times you'll pick up a torque converter shutter or something like that because it doesn't have enough friction modifier right. in it. Whole new world these days. Oh, I'm telling hey, you. Hey, one last quick little break. We'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Hey, Agco Automotive is here to tell you some things are too good to be true. Like free beer tomorrow or lose weight on the ice cream and cheeseburger diet. Another thing too good to be true? The low price oil change. Automotive businesses will sucker you in with an under $30 oil change and then give you a huge list of recommended maintenance and repairs like flushes, brake work, rack and pinion leaks, oil leaks, and more. Well, Agco says be smart. When you get the list, bring your vehicle to Agco and we'll provide you an honest evaluation of any problems you may be having. Want to know more details about upsells and wallet flushes, plus tons of other automotive info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Agco, it's the place to go. Oh, and those beautiful models just waiting to talk to you late at night? Yeah, too good to be true. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Alvazan, president of Agco Automotive. Got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here by my side. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go and give us a call, 499-9526. And we got Ralph on the line. Good morning, Ralph. Good morning. Listen, I just wanted to start off and tell you, I listen to you almost every Saturday morning, and uh, God bless y'all. Well, I mean, you know, you. you fill people with information, and you, you, you stir my critical thinking. I go, wow, <laughs> you know, man, that's neat. You know, so. Yep. Well, listen, I've got a rack and pinion I just bought sitting in my back seat, okay. and I was wondering if I needed to buy it. <laughs> All <laughs> right. What, what kind of problem are you having? It was a leak of fluid. Just I leaking? I was running low on my power steering uh-huh. fluid. What type of vehicle are we talking about? 94 Nissan Sentra with a 1.6. Okay. Yeah, those racks are really not rebuildable in the field, Ralph, because what happens is that the seals in them are pretty hard, and they tend to wear the aluminum bore out, and when that bore wears out, that's when they start leaking. You put seals okay. in it, and you really hadn't done any good. What they do in the factory when they remount them is they take and they bore that cylinder out, and they put a sleeve in it to give you a new seating surface, and that's just not doable in the field. And most of them are not that expensive anyway. Well, 
couple, to one. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, normally a couple of hundred bucks. Uh, you That's know, a lot in my world. And look, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I, I see them big tickets all day long, so they don't get me quite as excited. But one thing you've done it again. That's you've done it. it again. You've you've stirred my thinking, and you and I really appreciate. Yeah, you one thing you do, Ralph, on that thing, make sure you flush that fluid out real good before you change the rack. Yes. Sir. And the easiest way for you to do that one is going to probably take regular takes regular power steering fluid. Okay. Buy a couple of extra bottles. Go ahead okay. and take the line off. Run all the fluid out, and then fill it with fresh fluid and run it through the old rack. Do that three or four times before you take the rack out of it. That'll clean the pump and all out. Because if you take and just take your lines off, put them on that new rack. All oh, yeah. that old nasty fluid is running right through your brand new rack. Hello. And yep. you're basically using it as a filter. Yeah, using the new rack great. as a filter to clean right. up the old fluid. <laughs> so, Y'all are great. Yeah, be sure you get all the old trash out or you'll end up having trouble with that new rack. Thank you again. Sir. All right, Mr. Ralph. Thanks for calling, man. Merry Christmas. Thanks, Thank sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. 499-9526. number of you want to be part of the automotive eye, we would certainly love to have you. And we've actually got a filter set up at the shop where we can take the two lines off the rack, plug them into this filter, Pour the fluid in and let it run, which cleans the pump and the lines and all that. It's actually a remote oil filter base with mm-hmm. the biggest oil filter we could find. That doesn't have that, a bypass. That doesn't in have it. a bypass in it to screw onto it. So it actually filters the fluid going in and out of it. Right. That works even better. But if you don't have something like that, you can do the same thing by just flushing through the whole system. You just kind of do it a number of times sure. to get all the fluid out. I guess you could always take the return line off of the rack or even the pressure line off the rack, and just pour fluid into the pump and let it run if you are very, very careful. You just don't let the pump run dry. Exactly, because then you'll suck air into it, and you may not ever get that air back right. out. Or you could damage the or pump you could damage the pretty pump. quickly. So I don't believe in putting any kind of solvents or anything in that, just, no, especially if you got an old pump. Right, a lot of that stuff gets in there and doesn't come out. Yeah, or it could end up taking out some old seals that were still working fine uh-huh. but you know you get in there and mess that up so let's go back to our phone lines with drew hey i got this uh chevrolet venture i had to remanufacture the engine put in and, and i want to ask you a question about the antifreeze you know i always ran the decks cool the red yes. stuff and serviced it and everything uh-huh. but i had trouble with gaskets and uh, intake gaskets and head gaskets yeah. constantly redoing them yeah. so when i got the, the motor back the remanufactured mm-hmm. motor in it the guy tells me, absolutely, do not use the red antifreeze. Eats up gaskets. That's, the problem that General Motors had with gaskets is because the machine work is too rough on the engine. It has nothing to do with Dexcool. The Dexcool is an HOT-type coolant, which is not going to tear your water pump up. It doesn't have silicates and doesn't have phosphate in it. It does not have anything to do with those gaskets. I've seen a 1,000 people convert them over and still have the same exact problem with the gaskets. So... If you go on my website, there's an article on that that shows you pictures and everything else. That is a General Motors problem, but that has to do with the roughness of the machine work that they're doing on those engines. That's why those gaskets keep failing. Nothing to do with Dexcool at all, and Dexcool is the proper coolant to put in there. All right, so he put the green in. So am I going to hurt it by keeping that in there? Or? You're probably going to start eating up water pumps on a fairly regular basis is the most common thing. I service thousands of vehicles we use a lot of dex cool we have never ever ever had a problem with any of them gm only has problems on certain models that they have that machine work problem on the other engines don't like for instance the 5.3 liter has dex cool in it they don't have any intake gasket problems so you just did a little better job on the machine work of it that's one of those things where a guy who is not a real deep thinker 
he looks and he sees something different, something he doesn't understand, he's going to blame that. But he hadn't done any research, he hadn't looked into it. Dexcool has been tested and tested and tested. There's been several class action suits because of it. They've never one time prevailed. They've never proven Dexcool has ever hurt anything at all. I've seen millions of cars with it in there with no problems at all. I've seen just as many cars with the green stuff with problems. So no, that's a misnomer. I would never take any advice from anybody who ever told me that. You're going to need to drain the engine block and drain the radiator and all that. And you may have to do it more than once to get it all out. What I'm asking is, would you recommend doing that? I would, yes. Oh yeah, I would definitely put the right coolant back in it. Okay. Well, he tells me it's going to void the warranty if I, if I do that. So. <laughs> well, you got to do what he tells you then. I mean, just, just hope for the best. Okay, I appreciate it. All right, All man. Right. Bye-bye. Before the last call, we were talking about getting all the old fluid out before changing parts in a system. You go in, let's say you find some wheel cylinders leaking on your car. Okay, they're leaking for a reason. Yeah, usually the fluid is pretty contaminated. And you put two brand new wheel cylinders on, and then you bleed the brakes. So when you do, you're taking all that nasty, old, contaminated fluid. That is still in the system. Right through that brand new wheel cylinder. And what's even worse is those old cylinders, the seals were hard as a rock, so uh-huh. they can kind of scratch through it all right. That new cylinder, those seals are nice and soft and pliable. So when that nasty fluid gets in, it tends to just lodge into that soft rubber. Right. Then they start scratching on the boards, and what happens is that three to six months later, you got wheel cylinders leaking again. And you say, oh, these wheel cylinders aren't any good. Well, no, <laughs> that, that wasn't it. You just use the first set to clean the system. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But the same thing goes with everything. You want to purge out that system, make sure everything is nice and clean before you start changing parts. Most definitely. Nowhere on a car is that more important than in an air conditioning system. Talked to Melvin a little bit earlier about uh-huh. the compressor. Uh-huh. And that is one of the things that almost guarantees you're going to change the compressor again. In fact, I was talking to a parts store, and he said they get back about 60% of the compressors they sell. Right. Most of the time, it was not the fault of the compressor. Uh-huh. <laughs> but what happens is the old compressor goes out. It slings metal throughout the entire system. It's all up inside the condenser. It's all in the evaporator. It's in, in the, the filter dryer. It's in the lines. Well, you take two lines off, put a new compressor on. Well, all that just circulates right back through that new compressor. Sure. And it's just a short timer after that. Yeah, there's no filter in there. No. It's Not a, at that point. And there's no, no filter made that's going to take all that out. It's going right back through. And what is worse is that when the second compressor goes out, now you got the debris from two compressors in the system. Exactly. So, so you got twice the problem. Right. It's best to catch a air conditioning compressor before it comes apart. It really is. If you suspect you got problems with AC compressor, you want to change it before it actually catastrophically fails. Sure. Once you, you start getting that black sludge of death, you're into a whole system then. Well, you are because there's really no way to clean, say, a condenser. If you ever took an air conditioning condenser and cut it open, what you're going to see is some little tiny, tiny, tiny holes, normally six, seven, eight, ten of them in a row in a flat tube that extends for hundreds and hundreds of feet. Uh-huh. There's nothing on earth that's going to flush that out of there. Not at all. But what's going to happen is all that metal and sludge and stuff that's up inside that condenser when you start running it through a hot refrigerant should i say goes through it it's going to start to move slowly and it may take it a week it may take it a month but eventually it's going to make its way through the system and And right back to the compressor well that's it and once it goes through those metal chunks are not going to compress right (laughs) they're not that is an expensive system to damage yeah Yeah, it was expensive the first time exactly it's kind of like taking an air cleaner off the engine and just pour a handful of sand down there you go air horn you know and see what happens to the engines (laughs) hey i want to tell everybody how much i appreciate them listening this morning and every saturday morning on automotive hour like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week and tell your friends and Go to iTunes and give us a rating. Right, and on Stitcher, the same thing. Give us a written rating. We didn't get any last week and kind of 
bummed out, huh? Kind of hurt my feelings. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> sure like to see us get a couple of good written ratings this week. If you feel like we deserve it, I appreciate you giving them to us. Hey, preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.